This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. One of my favourite films over the last four or five years has been a documentary, really, a National Geographic documentary called Free Solo. And Free Solo tells the tale of this amazing superhuman climber, Alex Honnold, as he free climbs El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. And uh, Noah, my eldest son, is is here with us tonight. We went to go and uh, watch this uh, film. Um, And uh, I've watched it loads of times. The Oak Hill faculty, we watched it together. I've ended up writing about it. I love that film. Now, free solo climbing is different. I'm not a climber at all. But free solo climbing is different from free climbing... Free climbing is when you don't have any kind of an aid to help you, but if you fell, you would still have something that would kind of, you know, stop you from plummeting down. Free solo climbing is climbing without any aids whatsoever. It's completely free. And Alex Hunold is an amazing guy, and uh, he climbs El Capitan, and it's the story. Please go and watch it. Now... I want to use that film or that example to tell you why I've written this book, Making Faith Magnetic. As um, Alex Honnold is climbing El Capitan, um, the the course that he's on or the way that he plots his route, there's different pitches that are called different things. There's um, uh, uh, something called Monster Opwith. There's something called uh, Snowflake. There's something called the Boulder Problem. These are different parts of the climb that he has practiced and practiced over again. And right at the beginning of the climb, there's something called Free Blast or Free Blast Slabs. And the problem with this, as you look at it from the camera, is that it's as if he is climbing sheer glass. There doesn't seem to be any kind of uh, handhold or foothold to get purchase on. There's no traction, in other words. And I want to say that when it comes to us trying to um, communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to ordinary, everyday people in the West, but across the world as well, but especially in our secular context in the West... I think, however hard we try, we're really struggling to find traction. We're just slipping off. We're slipping down. We, we, we don't know how to make those connections. We, we've got so much great stuff to say about uh, life in all its fullness, but either people don't seem interested, or they don't want to talk about it, or all kinds of other reasons. And so what I hope this book presents is an encouragement to Christians to say, in the way the Bible describes all human beings, all human beings made in the image of God, that is all human beings, there is always traction. But you're going to have to work, we're going to have to work really hard to find those points in in an age that that claims it's kind of gone beyond religion, as it were. The amazing thing about Alex Honnold is that on that free blast, where it looks as if he's climbing glass, if you, as the camera kind of focuses in, you see just little indentations in the rock or little uh, 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 nubs that he kind of holds and contorts his body so he can climb. And I want to say that we have to do the hard work 
And, but by God's grace, by his spirit, there's always a way in. There's always traction that we can get. And this book is about giving a framework so we can get that traction. But it's going to be hard. Now, this was the, the, the other amazing thing about Alex Honnold climbing um, Free Blast, this part of the, the climb, because he's got these little indentations, but then this is a kind of a, um, a climbing term I'd never come across. It's, called, it's a technique called smearing. Basically, the rubber on the bottom of his shoes, you smear, and that's how you get traction. And you have to be in perfect balance to get the kind of traction. Remember, there's no other aids that he's got to help him. If one, one mistake and he dies. As he says in the film, it's like going, uh, achieving the gold medal at the Olympics, and you know that if you don't get the gold medal, you're going to be dead. It is incredible. How do we get traction for the gospel in our society? So this is a book about traction, but it's also a book about tethering. In other words, I do think that we need to be tethered to something or tethered to someone, the Lord Jesus, and tethered to his word where we, where we discover who Jesus is. Alex Honnold is an amazing guy. He's a freak, really. There's a very poignant part of the film which just uh, recounts loads of Alex Honnold's friends who are free climbers who have died. Very famous climbers. And there's a lot in the film about people who free solo, they don't usually live that long because they die. They fall down. They make a mistake. And I believe as a theologian and one who's committed to the word of God to explain the whole of life, that it's only by being tethered by God's word that we will be able to have life or we won't uh, fall away, as it were, spiritually. But here's the problem. I think some of us of, of, of Christians, we come from church backgrounds where the tethering's really good. We're so tied up that we can't even reach out to get any kind of traction. Other of us don't have any tethering because we want to get traction. How do we, as Bible-believing Christians, both get traction in our culture and how are we tethered to God's word? And those two things, I want to argue, are, are going in beautiful harmony together. So that's what this book is about. It's about how do we get traction and the Bible helps us, the Bible explains, the Bible gives us the lenses through which to view the world that make sure that we will always have some way of connecting the gospel and confronting people with the claims of Jesus. So that's what, this, that, what, that's what the, the book's about, really. It, it, it is a follow-on to my book, Plugged In, which gave the rationale for why Christians are to engage with culture and the reasons for that. And it kind of um, gives a, a more of a, a framework for us to understand that. Now, all of us are uh, sitting or standing on the shoulders of giants. And uh, in your handout here, um, you'll see that, uh, and as you read the book, there's one particular influence. Uh, this uh, man, there he is, um, smoking his pipe. He's a man called uh, Johann Hermann Bavink. And he was a, a Dutch reformed uh, missiologist. If you can have a look at this, this sheet at, at the moment. There's a picture. If you might have to share if there aren't enough there. Uh, Johannes Hermann Bavink. He was a Dutch reformed pastor and missionary. And he um, uh, went to be a missionary in Indonesia. 
uh, then called Java. And he came back and he ended up his teaching career at the Free University of Amsterdam. And he wrote many wonderful books. And really, he's been my main uh, inspiration and influence for this book, Making Faith Magnetic. J.H. Bavinck went to Java and he experienced all kinds of different people from other religions. And there's a very kind of uh, mystical sense about the people who he's engaging with, Hindus and, uh, and, and Muslims and uh, all kinds of people. And uh, Bavinck, like uh, John Stott used to say, he had the Bible in one hand, uh, the newspaper in the other. And he said, look, the religions are saying all kinds of different things, but there seem to be these common themes that humans just are wrestling with. This quotation isn't in the book, but I thought I'd give you a bit of pure Bavinck this evening. This is what Bavinck says. There seems to be a kind of framework within which human religions need to operate. There appear to be definite points of contact around which all kinds of ideas crystallise. There seem to be quite vague feelings. One might better call them direction signals that have been actively brooding everywhere. Perhaps this can be expressed thus. There seem to be definite magnetic points that time and again irresistibly compel human religious thought. Human beings cannot escape their power, but must provide an answer to those basic questions posed to them. Magnetic points. The other way that I describe it, these are my words rather than Bavink, it's like human beings have certain itches that they have to scratch. We have to. And what I try and do in the book is say, where does Bavink get that idea from? And uh, again, I, I don't want to kind of give the game away, but I'm happy to tell you a lot of it comes from the beginning of the book of Romans, where God says that all people know God and that God has revealed his divine power and eternal nature to uh, every, everyone. And it's out of those characteristics, out of the way that we've been made in God's image, even though we suppress the truth, which says in Romans 1, we substitute it for other things, but because we're worshipping beings, we always worship something. These magnetic points are still there. We still try to answer these particular issues in, life, in, in our lives. And whether it's at a kind of a very high philosophical level, or whether it's at a very kind of street level, human history, human philosophy... Bavink argues, and I want to argue, is just a wrestling out of those particular issues that we cannot solve. And, and the problem is, because idols cannot take the place of God, just like that itch that we continue to scratch, and your mum and dad says, don't scratch it, you'll make it worse. We can't help it, and it just becomes redder and redder and redder. And we then have a wonderful fount of living water to point to, to say, Jesus Christ is the one who can ultimately answer these things that you're running to and you're running away from, the living God. So, 
Very quickly, what are these particular magnetic points? Well, here, um, again, this is for tomorrow as well, if, if you're coming, but the other handout, I've given a little crib sheet here. Um, it, I'm delighted to say that uh, Jason, who, uh, um, Jason Ramasamy, who um, has started working for Crosslands as well, he's done these brilliant uh, little diagrams that I've been trailing as I've been using this stuff uh, all over the country. This was the result of me basically giving five minutes to Jason. He had an iPad on the end of a, I think he was on a train and basically came up with these amazing sketches. What a genius. So, <laughs> that's fine. So, these are, remember, the five magnetic points, Babink says, that all human beings wrestle with. And what I'm trying to do in the book, Making Faith Magnetic, is Babink applied it to his context as, as he was a, a missionary in Indonesia. And I'm saying, what does it mean for us as Christians in our post-secular, uh, modern, post-modern, meta-modern you know, post-Christian, you know, the, 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 the mess that is everything around us. What do those points look like? What might be examples of those points? How might we find them to get traction? How might we have to kind of do some work like Alex Honnold to get in the perfect balance to climb? And then how do we show how Jesus is the answer? How do we show that Jesus both confronts and connects with these people? How does... How is Jesus, this idea, as Ben's already said, the subversive fulfillment of all humans' aspira aspirations and dreams and hopes? So there's five points, and the, uh, the book's very simple in terms of structure. Each point has a chapter. I, um, each, sorry, each chapter has a point. I explain what the point is, and then I give lots of examples. And again, this is a collaborative effort, as I'll say. A lot of the best examples in the book are not my examples, they come from students who I've been teaching at Oak Hill over many years, and some of uh, you are here uh, tonight. They've come from people who um, have sent in examples. Uh, there's an email at the back here, uh, themagneticpoints at gmail.com. And I started at Word Alive, and I made up this, uh, this account. And people have been sending me examples, and the best ones have gone into the book. This is where we need to be working together on this kind of material. So let me just quickly, very quickly, go through these five points. I, I, can, I won't give you many, many examples because you need to read the book for that. Um, these points, remember, they're not simply compartmentalized. They all bleed into one another. They, they all talk about that idolatrous religious consciousness where we're suppressing the truth, but we can't get away from our image of godness. So here we go. Totality. As human beings, we ask this question, is there a way to connect? All human beings have an innate sense of totality, that they're small cogs in a much bigger machine, that somehow we are cosmically interconnected. And as a result of this, as humans, we feel both simultaneously small and insignificant, but also significant when we belong to something else. And we enjoy uh, being in community together. And we crave that connection and we feel abandoned after we've experienced it and we crave for it again and again. And what I'm doing in the book is I'm trying to show where do we see that idea of connectedness and totality? It could be a pride parade march. It could be looking for your family tree. It could be wanting to be more uh, in connection with the earth around us. It could be finding the perfect match, the, the one person who's going to really understand me. 
And it's amazing. That, I mean, I haven't seen so much uh, like since lockdown, but pre-lockdown on the London Tube, it's just dating agency after dating agency. Match, e.com, silver singles for the older generation. All of these ways in which we get that idea, as it says in the film Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me. We're looking for that because we want connection. Totality. Norm, a way to live. There is a vague sense that there are rules to be obeyed. People know and accept that there are moral standards and codes that come to which they must adhere. There is an appreciation of norms of behaviour which apply to all people which are ordered in some way and this brings a sense of responsibility to live up to these norms. Now look, the, these norms are not necessarily the norms of Christianity, although I, I think they're often kind of distorted versions of them. But, but everyone has their own rules. Even subcultures that have, um, con- have, have tried to rebel against the norms of a society still have their own rules. One student wrote in, and I have a little paragraph, on the issue of being a goth. Everyone has to be different in the same way. And I didn't know this, and this is what this uh, person told me, that apparently if you are a goth, you can wear baby pink because it's ironic, but if you're a younger goth and you don't really understand that and you wear pink, you'll be seen as an outsider. There's still rules. Why? Because we want to belong. It's where connection and norm come back. And again, at the moment, if when people say we don't believe in norms anymore, well, cancel culture is all about people who have broken rules. Unfortunately, there is no forgiveness. Deliverance. Is there a way out? We know that there is something not quite right with the world, and that's a little disputed notion. There is finitude and brokenness and wrongdoing in the world and the problem of suffering consistently confronts us. We mourn for a paradise lost and long for deliverance from these evils craving redemption. People know that the world isn't as it should be and yet people just cannot agree on what the problem is, let alone what the answer is. And so we look forward or we look back This is a very ancient notion, of course, that the romantics, some of you will know, the romantics who reacted against the kind of the rationalism of the Enlightenment. I love this idea that the romantics used to build ruins. They built ruins because it was the idea that there was uh, something way back. C.S. Lewis talks about it in terms of this idea of sensuk, longing. Any of you who are interested in literature will know that. That longing to go back to something the Arthurian legends, or any of these things, or to look forward to a utopia. Something has gone wrong. Here's the question. How do we get out of it? What's the solution? Is there deliverance? And people have all kinds of ideas of how we get that deliverance. Destiny. Is there a way we control? This is my favourite magnetic point. Although humans know themselves to be active players in the world... There is a nagging feeling that they are also passive participants in somebody else's world. Baving has this great line. And think about this in terms of your own life or the lives of your friends and family. Baving says this, we both lead our lives and undergo our lives. 
Some of us think that we just lead. Some of us think that we just undergo. Lots of people kind of Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they're leading. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, what can I do? I'm just undergoing it all. Something, somebody or something's doing it to me. And Baving says we kind of oscillate between those two things. Now, this is the only bit I'm going to read a little bit from the book because this is a, uh, an example that uh, one of my students uh, wrote in with regards to this idea of destiny. The student said this, You must never say the phones are quiet in the office. When I first started, I thought this was a bit of a joke, but it's considered deadly serious. You do not say that the phones are quiet. I've tried to talk it out with some colleagues because they're clear they have no belief in any sort of higher power and they are perfectly rational people. At the same time, saying the phones are quiet will result in something or someone making said phones busy and unbearable. We simultaneously have no control over how our phone shifts are going to go. You'll just have a day like that. And are responsible for our own or others' bad shifts because you said it was quiet and that made it busy. There's a level of discomfort around breaking this rule that goes beyond amusement or social discomfort. It does result in real tension when someone curses another person's shift. One of the interesting things about this power behind phone calls is that it's clearly malevolent. There's no good power responsible for quiet shifts or pleasant customers, just bad ones. Now, when that student sent that um, example in, I thought, well, they just must work in a weird place with weird people. But then I realized it was absolutely everywhere. Uh, the week after the student sent this in, I was doing another class and a, a guy who was a student of mine who was a policeman said, this is completely true. And Noah, my son, has confirmed it. Over the radio, you do not say it's quiet tonight. You say it's Q. You use the letter Q. And in accident and emergency departments up and down the country, so much so, and you have to read the book, I found peer-reviewed articles which seemed to be half spoof, half serious as to whether saying quiet made a difference in how busy A&E was that day. Let me uh, carry on the end of this. You can read all the examples that I, that, that I found here. Now, at this point, and before you contact the good book company to say Dr. Strange has finally lost the plot, I recognize that this has all the makings of an elaborate and brilliant spoof. However, I've sent this paper, this academic paper, it was in the Royal College of Surgeons, round to a number of medical professionals, and while the majority seemed to think it was a spoof, they were not completely sure. One believed it wasn't a spoof, but simply dodgy research. Most importantly, for the purposes of this chapter, all recognized the Q thing. And again, another great example I use at the time is uh, Maurizio Pochettino, who was the currently then, when I was writing the book, the manager of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. In the, uh, and they were about to play Liverpool in the Champions League final. And there was an article on Maurizio Pochettino. And apparently, this is true, Maurizio Pochettino has on his desk in his office a bowl of lemons because when people come in, the negative energy in the person goes into the lemons and wizens makes them wizens and he has to change them every few days. Think about this, the multi, multi-million pounds that is running a, a club. And there is Maurizio Pochettino with his bowl of lemons. Now, look, I know that these things are, are kind of, um, you know, that doesn't prove much apart from two people or a group of people. 
But what I try to do in the book is try to say, look, there's been a lot of research among sociologists of, of religion that we live in a very disenchanted age. But I think it's more complicated than that. We're both disenchanted and enchanted. I like to say we're differently enchanted. It's certainly not traditional, traditional religion that people are engaging in. But the magnetic points show that we are always searching. As John Lennon says uh, in the song Imagine, we, and I would say, we find it very difficult to believe above us is only sky. And we're looking for all these things. So destiny, a way of control. And finally, where all these other magnetic points kind of converge, and I think this is the difference between Bavink's work in Indonesia and in our secular context, where people believe in, in gods and spirits and the supernatural. Here, you've got to kind of dig deeper to get there. But here's the question that we ask at the end of the day as we say, is there a way to connect? Is there a way to live? Is there a way out? Is there a way we control? Is there a way beyond? People everywhere perceive that behind all realities stands a greater reality. That greater reality is variously conceived, but it's always a superior power. And again, some great secular religious experiences. The one that I pick on in the book, and again, is this phenomena, some of you may have heard it, called champing. Camping in a church. A, a, probably ch a church may be like this. People who feel as if there must be more to life and so they pay to camp in a church because they want to wake up and see the stained glass, the light come through the stained glass windows and it's going to give them some kind of experience. Or a student of mine's dad who's an atheist but went to Jerusalem and went into the Holy Sepulchre and felt something. It's nothing to do with traditional religion or anything like that but it's this idea that there must be more. And what is that more? Who is that more? So these are the magnetic points. A way to connect, a way to live, a way out, a way we control and a way beyond. And the book gives an outline of those and then gives, tries to give lots of, of examples. Um, admittedly, in our Western context, one of the challenges of the book is to do it and not do it, go and do this analysis in non-Western contexts as well. And then, therefore, the second half of the book is how then do we connect and confront the gospel of Jesus Christ to these, these, the, the people who are kind of wrestling with these points? And then the second half of the book shows us how we do that. How does Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ both subvert and fulfill those magnetic points? How do we expose the, the false ways that people are trying to answer or trying to scratch these itches? And how do we show that it's only Jesus who is the way that we connect? It's only Jesus that gives us the way to live. It's only Jesus who is the way out. It's only Jesus who, who, who is a loving Heavenly Father and we have responsibility and yet God is sovereign. He has a plan. And it's only Jesus who is the way beyond because he is the way, the truth and the life. Now, my contention in the book is that this isn't a new gospel. This is what we understand to be uh, um, uh, the, the, the centrality of orthodox Christianity, but in a way that gives us the traction that we need 
and stops us slipping down when our friends and our family have no idea or no interest in what we're talking about when we're talking about God or the Bible or propitiation or the inerrancy of scripture or heaven and hell or all of these things that are so central. This is a book about trying to give you that traction so that you can talk about Jesus. And I challenge you to go and read it and, and to, to think, how would you use these, this, these kinds of points in your conversations with people to try and point them to the Lord Jesus? So finally, before we have some questions, what's the target? Back to this first sheet. What's the target? If you're coming tomorrow, you, you'll need both of these sheets because we'll, be, uh, we'll be using them. What's the target of this book? Well, a few things, really. The book, the book is going to split into three parts. The magnetic points, Jesus, the magnetic, point, uh, the magnetic person, and then I want to say Christians or the church are the magnetic people. How do we stay magnetic as Christians? How will people be, be, be drawn to us, but more, more importantly, drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ through our witness? And there's an important point here, and maybe this is, should have been uh, the start of the book, but this isn't simply a book about doing evangelism. Uh, there's a student that made a great point to me a few months ago, actually, as I was doing the COVID teaching, as I was finishing at Oak Hill. They said, Dan, look, this stuff that you do on the magnetic points and all of this stuff, it's always in classes like evangelism and apologetics, but this stuff could be in, in stuff on discipleship. That is to say... What I would love us to do first, before you start talking about and using the magnetic points in your evangelism, apply it to your own heart. Because we know, even as Christians, we are ones who sometimes think that we're connected through something other than Jesus. Or we think there are other norms apart from Jesus's norms. Or we think that uh, we can be delivered by, uh, by something other than Jesus. Or we really struggle with working out how God can be sovereign and we have responsibility and then we just end up blaming God for everything and we just become a victim. The illustration that, that's been given to me is this. Don't think of your life as a pie chart but a flow diagram. We often think of our life as a pie chart that says, well, I have my job, and then I have a segment called my job, a segment called doing evangelism, a segment called discipleship, a segment called church. That's not how it works. We are disciples of Jesus. We are followers of the way. Our life is like a flow diagram. And as we apply and as we get to know Jesus and fall in love with him more and know how amazing he is and how is the, he is, as Leslie Newbigin, the great missiologist, said, Christ is the clue to, uh, to all creation then we'll naturally have opportunities to say that to other people who are trying to answer these magnetic points in all the wrong ways and they're just, their lives are just like this saw that's getting redder and redder. So I hope the book will be uh, a help to the church. And again, to do things together. This is what I've said about Plugged In as well. My goal, and again, I, I, I hope uh, Jen and myself and the team at Crosslands, we're going to be working on this. How could we get... Groups of Christians in local churches coming together, reading something like Making Faith Magnetic and say, yeah, let's work on this together. The kind of thing we're going to do tomorrow morning for London. How would we do it for where you live in your city, not just in the UK, but across the world? How can we get groups of Christians working on this in their own local context, applying it to their local context? Secondly, magnetic pastoring. 
This is a book for pastors to help them pastor people well. Because if we can see the world through those magnetic points, we know our people and we know the ways in which they are drawn away. They are uh, pulled away, magnetized by other things rather than by Christ. How can we use the, the magnetic points in our pastoring? What about our preaching? Right at the end, uh, Carl Lapperton at the book company said, uh, good book company said, can you just do a little appendix? And I did a little appendix here on what the magnetic points means for our teaching and preaching in churches. Not that it's a, a kind of a, a scaffold or you have to mention it in every service, but that, that just like the, the Puritans, the Puritans had these amazing grids that they used to use in their preaching preparation of how you would apply preaching to people and their hearts. And maybe these magnetic points can be really helpful as you're expounding scripture. You see, hey, there's a connection point there. Maybe I need to say something about that or the issue of deliverance or the issue of destiny. And finally, magnetic public engagement. This is pushing the boat out a little bit more. And this is something that I've been working on with, with Jen and others. Um, look, I, I really think we're living in a, in a context which is very dangerous in terms of the ability for us to talk to each other in a civil way. And I think the magnetic points could be a really helpful scaffold for, I hope, maybe teenagers in schools to come together and talk about their worldviews. Look at their world through the magnetic points. Of course, a Muslim student will answer these points completely differently from a Buddhist than a Christian, someone who's very enamored by critical race theory or someone in the LGBTQ plus community. But let's come together and use these points as a basis to have discussion. I think the church could have a real part to play in enabling civic debate once again. Now, of course, we, we know that the, the answers to these points are only found in the Lord Jesus. And yet we're not even getting an opportunity to say anything because we're either talking past each other or shouting at each other so much. How do we create a civic sphere to be able to engage and then have an opportunity to say something about Christ? So that's a bit about the book, Making Faith Magnetic. Uh, I hope you enjoy uh, reading it. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.